Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we are joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young from SoFi for their investment analysis. So check it out, and if you like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. Hey, it's Tuesday, July 5th. I'm Dan Nathan. You are watching Market Call. That's MKT Call. I am joined by Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. You know and love him. He joins us frequently on Market Call. And a very special guest, Danny Moses of Moses Ventures. Danny is Guy and my partner on the tape podcast that drops every Friday morning. Danny's been doing that with us since the start of 2021. So it's really great to have Danny join us today on Market Call. Guy is taking the week off. I think he deserves it. I think you guys would probably agree. I don't know what's going to happen to your Market Call bingo without Guy. But today's Market Call is brought to you by CMA Group. CME Group. I love CME Group. Where risk risk meets opportunity uh, and also, we are powered by Open Exchange here. So, guys, welcome. Danny, welcome. Carter, welcome. I hope you guys had a great fourth. Indeed, indeed. Where is Guy? Is he somewhere fun, fishing, snorkeling? I think there will be some fishing. I don't know, Danny. Did he tell us on on, uh, on, on the tape last week where Guy was going? He, he might. Yeah, not I think he's so somewhere cool. out. I think he's somewhere out east that didn't involve getting on a plane. Yeah. So well, I think here, uh, he's recharging. Right. He, he, he is recharging. He needs it. And, and I got to tell you, without Guy here, it's really hard. It was easy for me to say to read that uh, copy here. It's CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. How about that, gentlemen? And, and let me, let's talk about this a little bit because, uh, you know, we've all been collectively discussing the market weakness um, two quarters in a row for the, for the equity markets. But it really has been a story about macro. And that's been driving a lot of just the, the kind of equity market uh, volatility that we've seen this year. I think today is really interesting that you know i'm looking at the s p 500 down one and a half percent versus a nasdaq that's down basically a quarter of a point here carter when you see that sort of divergence we have not seen the nasdaq outperforming the s p 500 much this year so far talk to me a little bit about that when you see that sort of action well that's right so the nasdaq 100 of course is uh, with the russell 2000 both down 30% from their peak, much more than the S&P. The curious thing about, let's take the NASDAQ 100, top five stocks are half the weight, and the NASDAQ 100 indeed is basically half the weight of the entire NASDAQ. So it really gets down to the names. They are in many ways considered defensive. It's an odd thing to think of tech, but a mature growth company in an economic period of weakness has characteristics that by not being cyclical, not having leverage on a balance sheet, makes them, quote, more desirable than a steel company, than an energy stock, than an automotive stock that can lose money. And so there is a defensive characteristic to uh, 
a Microsoft, if you will, yeah. an Apple or a Google. And that's clearly what's happening today. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when you think about the moats that those companies have with their balance sheets, like you mentioned, but also just they're, they're just not they're not startups serving startups, if you will. You know, and that was kind of the story of the post dot com bear market. Danny, when you see this sort of price action, especially as we limped into quarter end in Q2, what, what, what does it make you think is getting this quarter off to a start? And we know that we're going to have earnings come really quickly. You know, so the S&P continuing, you know, in some of the groups that we're seeing rotation out, we're going to hit crude. We're going to hit financials. We're going to hit the energy complex and stuff like that. But this, is this just a little bit of a mini rotation we're seeing in a hard hit group, do you think? I think this is more, more of a rotation into a recession type of portfolio. Carter just mentioned it. I think when you have energy down like this, which we're going to get into, it's going to have an impact more on non-NASDAQ, right? When you yeah. have cyclicals that you just mentioned, I think that's we're resetting. The 210 basically inverted today or the whole yield curve from 2 to 20 is basically or you know, 2 to 10 is basically flat at this point. And so I think we're just gearing up there as a new quarter begins. We've talked about this on multiple podcasts as part of the risk reversal network, though, is that kind of what the setup is going into the third quarter. And we will have, I think, a big, big pre-announcement season coming. And I think this is going to be a time to re-underwrite a lot of this. I think we're having a lot of moves overshooting probably on some of these names to yeah. the downside and potentially overshooting on some short covering on some names, which I know we're going to get into in a little bit as well. Yeah, and I think that's a really great point. And Carter mentions this all the time. It is about timeframes, right? When you think about things that are overshooting to the downside, you know, on a near-term basis, things can get very oversold. And I know that all of us have been collectively, you know, in the camp of selling um, rallies in the market, even with the S&P down, you know, 15% just a month and a half ago. Now it's down 22% or whatever. This is at least the S&P 500. And a lot of it has to do with those timeframes here. And we all think that the S&P probably bottoms at much lower levels. So these rallies are giving you opportunities. The problem is, and if we just kind of pull up my kind of lame chart before Carter gets into the S&P 500, these rallies off of near-term lows have just gotten kind of shorter in duration, right? And and kind of less in, in, in the kind of, um, in, in the, uh, velocity to the upside here. Carter, talk to me a little bit about this, because if you look at the 50-day moving average, it's tr basically tracking that uptrend since late March in the S&P 500. And that rally, while it lasted you know, for just a few days and it was kind of sharp, really petered out here. And now we're showing relative underperformance, like we just talked about, to the NASDAQ. Right. And so the sequencing is what you're referring to is important. We've had three, four distinct sell-offs from the Gen 4 high and four distinct rallies. This last one, of course, uh, being from mid-June and then started to peter out. I, I, my hunch is that we're, we're not going to take out those lows of two weeks ago anytime soon, that we're actually kind of in a fallow period and that there are things that are, let's say, supportive of the market, most notably uh, crude coming off and rates coming off. And there are things that are, that are a problem, that's the dollar. And so that you're kind of stuck in a in a lot of cross currents here. And the really the next thing that will start to move individual stocks and by inference move the chart that is the S&P will be earnings. Yeah, show us your charts because you brought a couple in. I think Danny's gonna have something to say about what he thinks near-term direction. And just so you guys know here at Market Call, you know, the viewers of this, Danny and, and Carter go way back. They, they started, uh, you guys worked together. Did you work together in the late 90s at Oppenheimer? <laughs> 
And, and, and then obviously when Danny was on the buy side, you guys spent a lot of time together. And I know that, you know, uh, Danny thinks very highly of your work. And even so, and Danny, when we, after we get Carter's charge, I'd love for you to get a sense of how you used to marry his technical takes with your fundamental takes. Because I think you and I both agree that we could see a little pressure released into earnings season, especially if some of those pre-announcements don't materialize. But once the kind of realization that we are going to be in a recession and that the numbers are not going to get better before um, they get worse, then you kind of just kind of say, hey, listen, I want to sell every rally here. Carter, talk to us about these two two charts really quickly on the S&P. Sure. Just first, that's, Danny and I met at a dinner and, you know, sometimes you meet someone for the very first time and it's quite clear that you're kind of uh, thinking the same thing and coming out of completely different uh, uh, sort of disciplines. And so uh, that started and it was just before things really wiped out. Um, in 07 and turned into the 09 crash. And, you know, for what it's worth, we're both on the same side, uh, full bears. In any event, I've got three arrows drawn here. Those, uh, the ricochet, the counter trend, we filled one of the gaps. My, my thinking still is that we're going to get that second one. It's a little above 4,000. And, and that's about where this uh, peters out. Now, I know we've started to give some back, and so that makes that less uh, sort of optically likely, but I do. I think that right here and now, the surprise is actually a little bit of strength. But longer term, and that's important too. Look at the second chart. This is those are mathematically parallel lines. Like I didn't manipulate them and draw them. They are literally using a magnet off of uh, you know, fact set. And what you have here is we touch to the penny, to the the, the midpoint of the 2009-22 channel. Now, do we ultimately get into the lower band? Sure. But we've just now approached the midpoint, and that's why I think we're stabilizing and have a little bit of bounce potential. Yeah, and I would add to that. Um, I think we could see certainly a near-term bounce because the bond market has been telling us everything that's going to happen in the equity market now for over a year. It told you what the Fed was going to end up doing, and now it's telling you what the Fed's really going to do, which is at some point to blink. It may be in the very near future here. So I think that's probably that little bounce that you might see is – you have oil coming in, right? That's good for inflation in terms of tempering it down, obviously, right? It's not great for energy stocks, but it's good there. It's telling you that there's demand destruction. It's telling you things are slowing much quicker. And when you look, I know we'll talk about the bond market and the yields and what they look like soon, but when you look at Fed fund futures, they are collapsing into what people believe the Fed's going to be doing. And now a cut has been brought all the way forward to kind of spring of 23. Dan, I know you and I have our side bet on 22. I was probably a little bit aggressive on that. But the point is that it's not going to take much to have a rally in the equity markets of what the bond market is already telling us. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And, you know, the, the, like, again, you know, we're kind of putting together some different mindsets here. You know, Danny, you're tracking the fundamentals and the macro very closely. And Carter's just focused on the charts. And I think, um, you know, the idea of releasing some pressure to the downside, we had, you know, just, you know, this morning we had an S&P that was down, um, again, a little over 20% and a NASDAQ down um, a little over 30%. And this is one of the things that I think is is worth keeping an eye on. We're going to hit some of the sectors that are getting hard hit here. We're seeing a rotation into some of these, let's call them these arc names. And Amanda put together a list of the top 10 holdings you see some of them are screaming the arc um, is up the etf is up you know five and a half percent and I, one of the things that i thought was really interesting about this arc and carter i'd love to get your take on this not that this is um important as it relates to the major indices but it does show a pocket of stocks that had unusually positive sentiment right in 2020 and 2021 where a lot of them topped out in the beginning of 2021 but this thing this group of stocks is starting to show a little bit of relative strength the arc 
ETF did not. The innovation did not make a new low, right, with the S&P and the NASDAQ here. And if you look at this thing backed out to the start of 2020, it didn't even break those uh, March 2020 lows here on that recent downdrafts here. Curious your take from a technical standpoint, and does this mean anything? We didn't spend a lot of time on the NASDAQ, but this is a pocket of stocks that maybe other than Tesla, which is what the third largest holding, aren't particularly important to the overall averages. Well, they're not, right? Because their total market adds up to nothing. But in terms of the setup, it's not random where it's stabilizing. You've drawn the line, right? It's right at a critical juncture. And it's not sort of idiosyncratic and specific to art. XBI, biotech, is doing it. Chinese internet stocks are doing it. And so they're the, the most beaten up things of all, in many ways, down 70 80%. A lot of them are doing this. Now, not all. Look at Peloton. I mean, the thing just continues to go down. But in terms of, again, it's always knowing this, right, who you are. If you're a trader, maybe we we play these for a bounce. I, I'm prone to do that kind of thing. But then think about the loan. You're sitting there with a sovereign wealth fund that's got a trillion dollars from petrol dollars. Now, bottom line, does that person is a three to five year view. Do you buy Google down 32% trading at a below an S&P multiple? And that man or that woman who might be in charge of the whole thing say, listen, here are the facts. If you could ever buy Google down 30% and have a five-year view, do you know what happens? You make a fortune, right? So it's who you are in the market. That's not what I want to do necessarily, but it's, it's every man, every woman has to know what their game plan is, what their time frame is, and then play accordingly. Yeah, Danny, what do you think of these stocks? I know that you, we've spent a yeah. lot of time talking about Tesla, which is, again, the largest by market cap. And if you add up all the other market caps in the top 10, they don't equal um, Tesla here. So the, the fate of this ETF really um, you know, relies on what happens with Tesla from here on out. But what do you make of these stocks kind of firming up and not making new lows with the S&P and the NASDAQ? Well, some of these names, obviously, with the exception Tesla has have very little debt, right? So that's one thing. It gets put into a different category, which is a positive. Two, they're heavily shorted, obviously. And there's, there's ETFs that have been created to actually inverse the arc. And the other thing that happens in the market is that, again, as your longs go down versus the shorts, you are forced, unless you want to get more net short as a portfolio manager, to take down your shorts accordingly. So, and the last thing is that, again, say a lot of, say what you want about Kathy Wood, but obviously she's markets herself very well and successfully, and there's still inflows. So there's a math to this thing as well. So I wouldn't read too much into it other than these are very beaten down. They're probably heavily shorted and the inflows are, you know, going to keep going. I'll put Tesla aside for another conversation, different day, but that's kind of my take on it. All right, let's talk about crude. This is really the big story today, and it's oil. And when you look at some of the headlines, I think their Citibank was out saying that they could see crude collapse to sixty-five bucks, right? And you're starting to see, um, you know, the indication that price of the pump is coming down here. Axios had a good piece on this um, today. It seems like all anybody can talk about, and crude oil is down ten percent. And I know that you know we had been talking about. All right, is there a tape bomb about some de-escalation in the war in Ukraine? Um, you know that could kind of cause this sort of movement? Movement. Well, we're having it without that. And I'm just curious, Carter, you were on the camp that you were going to see crude come in. It did not kind of break out above those March highs when it went parabolic, even as it was grinding higher the last couple of months. And it seemed like almost to a T. And this is one of the reasons why we bring up a lot of this stuff. Remember on June 8th, when the big headline, whether it be in the journal or the FT or CNBC or on Bloomberg was that Exxon makes new all-time high above its 2014 highs. And I think all of us were cringing 
we're like, those are not the sort of headlines you want to go out and buy oil stocks with, right? And especially as you're seeing like kind of peak fear about inflation, that sort of thing. So curious a little bit, Carter, because your take was to sell oil. I was in that same sort of camp here. And look what's happened to these stocks. Crude oil is down, what, 20% um, in a little less than a month here. How, what do you what do you do with these things right now? Because ultimately, we've got to see some sort of stabilization um, at a lower level here for to kind of really focus on fundamentals again. Because really, it had been trading very technically over the last few months. Right. I guess the, the I think the, the the most important moment or, or or let's say data point is when crude went from March 25th. It was a Friday up six sessions, up 45% from 90 to 130 yeah. barrel. It was, of course, in response to Russia crossing the border. And it was all discounted. It was all, all of it priced in right then and there. And we have an analog, and it's one of the greatest of all time. In 2008, uh, the preeminent brokerage firm, it's not about them being scolded by me. It's not to do with that. I've been the, the dud over and over in my life. But Goldman Sachs in 2008 raises their price target to 100 50, 175 a barrel, and it ends up at 40 within six months. And guess what we had this time? We had JP Morgan on that spike, the preeminent bank in the world, calling for $200 a barrel. Based on what? And guess what? It's doing the exact opposite. When you start extrapolating parabolic moves, you know, or what you just said, headlines like Exxon all-time high, you take the other side of the trade. Yeah. And so here we are. There are no drawings on this chart. Let's put some drawings on there. So what do we have? We have a trend line. We've broken the trend line. Same drawings that you had on your chart. Let's put a second converging trend lines. We've broken down through that formation. Uh, let's do a third chart. What we know is basically we're stuck in a range. You excuse that blow off. And then basically, this is the range. It's now six, seven months in the making. But I want to show something fun. And this is, uh, look at this next. There's on June 2nd, how crude looked. Now, uh, this is a shout out. I learned that expression from my kids. I don't think I've ever seen it in my life. But this is a shout out to worth charting subscribers. I want to show you when the chart looked like that, we put out a one question poll to institutions and to Twitter and to subscribers. Will crude oil make new highs? Look at this. This just shows you how it's right. 70% of institutions on that day said that crude would make a new high. Think of that. And subscribers, the most cautious. Look what's happened. It's the exact opposite. So the final chart that I mean, whenever it's too happy and good, it just class like a cocktail party. Hey, maybe we uh, <laughs> keep our eye on the exit, as they say, before the cops come. It is where it is. And I would right. say, Dan, I would yeah. say to that we've seen a little bit of demand destruction. We've seen that in the numbers of the last few weeks. That's kind of fueled this. No, no pun intended a little bit. But I think the, the problem is going to start to become how do you equate this to owning energy stocks? Right. How do you. Where do you draw the line on what energy stocks earnings will be? And ironically, I'm still trying to find the reason that ExxonMobil pre-announced their quarter, almost like an in-your-face dunk on whether they're looking to get their stock up to make an acquisition or whatever reason it was. I don't know what they got, what they gained from that. Obviously, the stock is down today because oil is dropping like, you know, like this. But again, you're going to overshoot to the downside. You probably overshot to the upside. And the one thing I'll mention is we still have an issue in the markets with liquidity even on something like oil. We've seen it in 10-year yields, right? You saw microcosm of it in nickel and other things. And so let's not forget, 
how irrational these markets can be in the short term. And I think we saw that on the upside and now we're probably getting a little bit on the downside. Yeah. And, it, and it's, you know, if you're an equity investor and you're trying to play an area of the market that you think, you know, is going to have some tailwinds and you like the kind of energy story, you know, like the, the fact that you get from an all time high, the OIH, the ETF that tracks the oil services down 33% in less than a month, right? It's kind of escalator up, elevator down the XLE, which is 40% Exxon and Chevron, right? Down 26% in a, almost a straight line. I mean, that's real bad action. And I think that's why important to, you know, to kind of get a sense of the marrying, right? Sentiment, fundamentals, technicals, all of it together. At least that's the camp I think Danny and I are in here. Let's talk about this other major story today is the US dollar. And, you know, when you look at the Dixie, we know that 50% of it is the euro. We're not even going to look at the euro. We know that it's basically back um, towards parity, making new 20-year lows. And we know what's going on over there in Euroland. And very sadly, I mean, given the war that's right on their borders um, in Eastern Europe, they're very likely to be in a recession. And, you know, the dollar has been a bit of a safe haven here. You look at that kind of one year chart or from, uh, you know, you see that kind of really nice um, breakout from those levels early this winter. Once that war started and money was just moving into U.S. dollars and you see it holding that uptrend way above that um, 200 day moving average. But this is the one I really want to focus on before Carter gets to his charts of the Dixie, you know, a higher dollar or stronger dollar used to be kind of negative for oil. And what happened back in 2014 when the U.S. Federal Reserve, um, you know, came off zero interest rate policy, they started testing the idea of tapering um, QE. Well, we saw the U.S. dollar index rally from 80 to 100. And that was basically the thing that broke crude oil at the time. And then there was a bunch of gross scares, you know, overseas, that sort of thing. And you look what happened, the inverse relationship. Now, look at how these things have worked higher together, crude and the dollar. Danny, I'm just curious, how closely do you keep an eye on that correlation? And are we likely to see, is this one of the reasons why we're seeing crude get hit so hard on this sort of breakout? I mean, I guess it is. I would say that, you know, crude, Carter could tell you this, but it's right on the 150-day line right now. So this is a very important point for it. But listen, certainly everything in the, around the world is denominated in dollars when it comes to oil and gold, which we can certainly talk about. And when you think about what the dollar is doing in relation to what's going on in Europe and what the euro is doing. Obviously, we're about to reach parity here on the euro. Things are actually worse in Europe and slowing down a little bit. So this is kind of the worst case scenario yeah. when you have a strong dollar and a strong economy in the US, but you're still the, quote, sexiest game in town, which is, I think, what's going on here. So something's going to give here, Dan, very, very soon. I think it'll actually be the dollar that gives in again, I think, in conjunction with what the bond market is already telling us, that the Fed has probably gotten ahead of itself in terms of how hawkish they are being. And I think that could be the point. And here's the irony with just to bring it back full circle to oil here. The reason oil is down, I believe one of the reasons is people believe they're bringing out the playbook for a recession, right? If that's truly why oil is down, it's going to go lower. If you told me oil is going to go to 65, we're past a recession. We're in another element. We're not saying depression. I don't want to bring don't say We don't say the, don't D, say word. the D word. We don't say so, the D word on market saying call. Is, Careful what you wish for, but it's really important to your point, Dan, on why are these things moving like they are? And I believe right now we just have a lot of movements that yeah. don't mean anything yet, meaning they aren't 
putting us in a certain position yet, but we're, we're kind of getting there. But I still think there's going to be a lot of gyrations here. Well, yeah, I'll just say this. As far as the Dixie's concerned, and Carter's going to walk us through it, he thinks a little differently. The charts are telling him something differently. But I think the Dixie's move, you know, in the last few weeks, in the end of this Q2 into Q3, into earnings season is really important. I think you got to go back and remember that Microsoft also pre-announced a quarter, which a lot of people were left scratching their head, and they blamed it on, you know, the strong dollar. Well, this surge in the Dixie only makes the likelihood of a very murky forecast for most U.S. multinationals, you know, for Q3 or the back half of the year, that much murkier, you know? And so that's why I think it's really important to have a good handle on the dollar. Carter, what are you seeing in the Dixie? Right. So the sector that has the most exposure to currency is technology by virtue of selling their wares globally. And then staples, which makes sense because the big names like Procter and Coke and uh, sell their things abroad more so than regional banks, which have no international exposure, to be obvious. Uh, but let's look at some charts. And I mean, I'm in the dollar higher camp. Uh, first iteration is a weekly chart. You see a big range and we know it's broken out. The next one, um, it's the same thing longer term. Those are monthly bars, a range and a breakout. Another way to draw the lines would be Head and shoulders bottom, a cup and handle bottom, doesn't matter what you call it. Let's pull it back even further. So there's another way. Now, even longer term, draw the lines. It's, it's the same thing. That's the, what's the definition of a bottom? Put the uh, cup and handle on here or the downtrend line. Let's look, look at the next iteration. Now the cup and handle. I mean, put them all together. It just looks like a higher dollar. The dollar... That's the, you know, the plaza cord there in 85, the peak when they intervened. I'm just dollar higher camp. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, one of the one of the days on market call that I enjoy is, is CME days because we really do focus on a lot of these macro risk assets and we look at the futures. And I got to tell you, as long as I've been in the business, guys, and Danny, I'd love to get your take on this. And for me, in 25 years, I have just never seen so many cross currents that are affecting, let's say I'm a stock market, you know, like dummy, right? But when you think about dollar strength, wait, um, yields are going higher. That was the story, right? And the Fed's raising rates, but that, why is is the 10 year going lower? We're going to have, why do we have this inversion? Um, what's going on in industrial metals, right? I mean, the list, the list goes on and on and on, right? About like that kind of these confusing macro um, headwinds. Talk to me a little bit about these sorts of periods, Danny. And what do you kind of, what do you like to focus on the most, especially when you're thinking about the stock market and what's going to have the biggest impact? What do you want to see sort of moderate? Is it that dollar move higher? Do you want to see commodities come in and stabilize at a certain point or rates doing what you think they should be doing? I think the Fed's balance sheet is the big overhang and the big cloud. And I think we're in uncharted territories, to quote Carter here. But I mean, you can't, there is no historical precedent for what we're seeing right now, because you've never had to face an eight and a half trillion dollar unwind of something that is, you know, wind in your face. And so that, Dan, I think is the big unknown. And I think where the Fed has really messed up here is being very aggressive, not only in how they say they're going to go through quantitative tightening, but to actually believe, and I've said this over and over again, that this quantitative tightening has the impact of a quarter or a half point. To me, that's insane because it has massive, massive reverberations for every asset class that's out there, yeah. from mortgage-backed securities to the dollar, to rates, to everything that's out there. So I just don't know. I just think we're going to, you know, obviously, I think, again, the bond market right now is the smartest thing. It's the one, it's always the smart money. It's always first. And what is it telling us? 
It's yeah. telling us that we're in a recession already. We're going into it. It's telling us that the Fed is overshooting. It's telling us that the reason that oil is probably coming down here on the margin is because the economy is slowing. And then, so there's a lot of moving pieces here, Dan. I just there's there's not enough history to deal with an unwind of this size, and that's just it. And and the, the hard thing right now is that where do you hide, right? Where do you hide in this market? You know, and right now it's in the ten-year bond, right? Because it's telling you that's a, a safe place to be. Tomorrow might be something else. So it's just. You really have to stay on top of this thing, and it's really changing by by the day. And that's well, not the way you want to manage money, but it is. Yeah. Before we hit treasury yields, I just want to hit this because this is kind of in that industrial commodity camp, and it's kind of signaling recession. You look at this headline from Bloomberg today: copper spirals to 19-month uh, lows here. Recession fears dominate this guy at Macro Alpha. I like him. He's a good follow, man. There's a lot of stuff going on, and the speed in which you know copper has come in. You know, long thought to be this kind of bellwether. So we're already starting to see. Tons of different risk assets kind of priced in a recession here. Look at this chart, um, you know, of copper futures here. You see that move. I mean, this thing was above, you know, 480. And now here we are down below 350 in a straight line. Um, you know, that, that move from, you know, 460 to 343 or so is just in a matter of weeks. Carter, when you see the speed in which something that is just so widely tracked like copper, um, and then you look at the kind of price action in these stocks, look at FCX nearly cut in half, Freeport Macron in just a couple of months here, letter X, US Steel um, cut in half here. What is what is the, the industrial metals complex saying to you? Well, it got, it was loved, just like anything that gets yeah. too far. Now it's the reverse, just as tech was loved. These are cyclical business. Ford Motor's down fifty percent too, right? Ford Motor can lose money yeah. in any given year. I mean, it can get so bad that, as you know, they hocked their logo. Because if we started an auto company, the three of us would have to call out the Dan Autos or Carter. But wouldn't we like to call it Ford? They hocked their logo. That's yeah. all they had. It's like going to a pawn shop. A cyclical business is a cyclical business. Dead heavy, and when the earnings dry up, it can go down fifty percent and go down seventy, and that's what accounts for the relative outperformance they in tech because they don't have that condition. So, so, Danny, you just spent some time talking about the one thing that we didn't have a chart or, or um, you know, some sort of screen graphic of the the Fed's, um, you know, uh, balance sheet here a little bit. And obviously, the Fed, you know, there was a lot of policy errors that a lot of pundits, economists, strategists, market participants were saying were made before you know we even got this volatile period um, in 2022. Talk to me a little bit about how you're focused on CME's Fed Watch tool and what you know expectations are for this July meeting that's coming up soon, right? September meeting. And your point that you made earlier in the show here is that the Fed's going to have to pivot because the economy is weakening so quickly here. So a lot of these errors have already been made by them. Is there a way to fix it? What is the CME FedWatch tool telling you about what market participants think are going to happen with Fed funds? No, it's telling us that they might go another, call it six quarter point hikes, however you want to do that in 75 or 50 increments, whatever it wants to be. And maybe there's seven and then they're done. Right. So three, three and a quarter type. We're at 150 to 175 right now. So it's telling you and it's telling you that there's rate cuts possibly coming. So I think the market's trying to extrapolate that. They heard Powell speak last week in Europe. He had no idea what he was talking about, which, again, I know guys out here are not ripping on the Fed, but this guy had no idea. He actually said, we understand now how little we understand about inflation. That's your one job, dude. Like, that's your one job. Figure it out. And so to me, the market's trying to figure it out for him. And I think when we get to that point again, the market's going to start to price in a cut, or which is why I believe in Carter. I'm not saying the dollar can't go higher from here. And I think we are also underappreciating what's going on in Germany and in Europe. I mean, they are starting to ration energy now already. 
utilities are basically getting bailed out right now by German taxpayers preparing for what they're going to do about gas in the winter. We're going to turn the calendar and all of a sudden we're August, September. We're going to look at a winter with gas storage levels low. Again, not trying to paint a bad picture, but you have to think about that stuff in the context of how high can you let the dollar go versus the euro? What impact will Germany literally coming to a halt in their economy have? And that's what I mean by this. We're all kind of, it's all kind of tied in. So in a nutshell, Dan, I stand by the fact that the, the Fed is way over hawkish now. The market's already reading into that. And so you should be setting up your portfolio accordingly to me, you know, as far as I'm concerned, to what that's going to look, look yeah. like in 23. Because that's what the CME Fed fund tools are telling us right now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so, you know, Nostradami is obviously not here today. Um, over the last couple of weeks, he thought that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield um, could get back towards 2.75. Carter, I know you've been in the lower yield camp for a while here. I know, Danny, you've been adamant about another um, 210 uh, inversion. We have that here. Carter, talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing. I Again, in my kind of really basic lines and stuff like that, we have a one-year or year-and-a-half chart of the um, – the 10 year here, we saw that breakout from, I don't know, close to like one and a half percent up to three and a quarter. That was the 2018 high, but they've come off and they've come off hard here. What's your expectation? Where will the 10 year yield find some support? Right. So um, the, the, you have a yellow, good moving average. A lot of people love it, the 200 day. But if, if you were to picture where the 150 day be, which is since there's less inputs, it's tighter, it's higher. The 150-day and yields are likely to meet around 2.6. So okay. I'm thinking 2.6, uh, a check back to the 150-day. Okay. And Danny, what would that mean to you? Like, where would we be? You know, that whole notion that lower yields is, is better for stocks here. And given all the cross currents that we've just talked about, you can throw that um, out the window here. I have the 210 spread um, since the start of 2019. And I think it's important where, you know, a lot of people will tell you, okay, well, that 210 spread inverted in 2019. And yeah, 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 we got a recession in 2020 in a bear market, but it was brief. And, you know, again, it was a black swan event. We had that brief inversion just a couple of months ago. Here we are again, um, inverted. How are you thinking of the yield curve inversion? Because I also have a longer term chart going back to 1999. And I think it's important to recognize that the inversion that we had in 2000 preceded a bear market and a recession. The one that we had, the inversion in 2006, seven did the same, right? We had a bear market and a recession. 2019, the same. I'm hard pressed to think it's not different this time. We've already had a 20% drawdown from the highs in the S&P 500. I think all of us are in a camp that the S&P bottoms out from much lower levels. So talk to me, Danny, how you're thinking about uh, yield curve inversion. Yeah, I think you just defined it. I think we are in a bear market, obviously, by definition. And we, I think we are in some type of recession, however you want to. I know they now can use judgment in order to call, if they want to call it a recession, the NBER or whatever. But yep. listen, it's, it's, if, I think we talked last week when the 10-year yield was at 3%. And I said, pick your, you know, Pick your journey. If you if you woke up one day and it's a two percent or four percent, the ten year is the market higher or lower? And I was in the camp of at two percent ten year, the market was much lower because what would have caused that to happen again was people starting to price in some type of recession. I think that's what it's doing again. I think they're telling you that what the Fed is doing is going to slow down the economy. So the Fed lets off the the, the you know the gas a little bit. Ironically, ironically, I think the ten year yields actually may move higher. But again, we are dealing with an eight and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. And I hate to keep harping on it, but there is nothing in the past in any of these charts, maybe the one a couple of years ago, certainly, but the one, you know, 10, 12 years ago, no, 
we're in uncharted territory for how do you play the, the speed at which the Fed plans to unwind their balance sheet. And mortgage-backed securities have a massive impact on treasuries indirectly because the two categories trade off of each other. So you can't have those two being very, very wide apart for a long period of time. So that's something else to consider. So the answer is, I think it's telling us that things are slowing. It is actually where I'd put my money right now is in 10 years. I think yields are going to come in, whether it's 260 card or not. I think it always will overshoot to mm-hmm. the downside. So I think it's telling us something more is going well, on. Well, what, what, hey, Carter, what is um, what are the banks telling us right here? JP Morgan, all the major money centers made new 52-week lows today. They've rallied a little bit off the lows from the morning here. If you look at this JP Morgan again, my basic charts here, you see that downtrend. We're down 30% um, here. We're below those levels from Jan of 2021, which is, again, maybe it's just an arbitrary point. Um, I look at that thing and I say to myself, man, what is it telling us about all of these these kind of macro inputs we've talked about, about the potential for a deeper um, and longer recession, right? And we all know, we can all agree, Danny, you've made this point on the tape many, many times. These The banks are not the banks from 2006 and 2007 from a capitalization um, standpoint and everything like that. I'm just curious, Carter, what's your take on the banks? We also have a, a, a simple BKX, which looks a little different. And you might say, well, because there's other regionals and stuff there, you know, that is above its, uh, you know, Jan 2021 levels here. Curious, you know, how how these things are setting up, because, again, we're going to get earnings starting next week or late next week from these banks. The lower they go into earnings, is it a better to set up for a pop on the way out? Yeah, my hunch is to sort of stay underweight or be short the across the spectrum. So the big broker dealers, right, investment banks look uh, very heavy. So did the credit card lenders like Cap One and Discover, even American Express is struggling. And then, of course, all the super regionals from PNC and U.S. Bank Corp to the big heavies like J.B. Morgan. It's, and their relative performance to the market is poor. I, I just wouldn't want to be there. Danny, what do you got there? Because this is a group that's kind of near and dear to your heart. And again, you've been bearish on the group, but you've basically said routinely for the better part of this year that they're not part of the problem here. But what do you make of the underperformance relative to the S&P? Because you have JP down, again, 30% of the year versus the S&P that's down only 20%. Yeah, I think you can separate the regional banks from the Wall Street banks, per se, in terms of more more exposure to the IPO calendar and M&A and all that capital market stuff. So that's part of why you see a little bit, I think, overshooting or shooting more to the downside, I should say. But credit is the underlying thing here. And if you say in the quarter, when people report the second quarter, that if anyone actually has credit credit reserve releases, no one's going to believe them. Those stocks actually will get hit more than the stocks that actually say, we're going to start to reserve a little bit more for credit. So there's a massive headwind, I think, on, on the consumer and corporate credit markets that we're obviously seeing. Rates in the high yield market are going out. That tells you the cost of doing business is going to be higher. It tells you there'll be less bonds being issued, obviously, in the future for some of the companies. Um, And so I just think you're seeing a slowdown in general. But again, I think the big read for me is going to be how is the consumer holding up? What does credit look like? And we're starting to see pieces in in the auto market in, in credit, which rearing its head again. Nothing catastrophic. And again, to your point you made at the opening of the segment, Dan, this is not 2006, seven. These banks are, are very well solidified on the balance sheet. They're, they're, they're going to be fine. But these are utility stocks. Yeah. And that's how I think you need to think about these companies. They're companies that are going to trade towards book value. These are companies that are going to have a buyback, dividend yields, et cetera. So I think that's how you got to think about them. They're not sexy, but they will certainly be a place to buy 
on extreme weakness. Yeah, and I think the lower they go into earnings next week is probably the better setup to play for a bounce. And let's see how much of a bounce they get if the numbers aren't as bad as expected. All right, here's a here's a really great headline, and we're going to get out of here. I really appreciate you guys going over time um, with us today. This is from Andrew Ross Sorkin, the deal book at New York Times. I know him, love him. Um, he had a great piece this morning, Crypto Crashed. Wall Street won, and this is a great headline, how Wall Street's biggest banks sidestepped the crypto meltdown. So guys, maybe regulators did their job in the wake of the financial crisis because Wall Street's fingers are not all over this crypto crash. We have a couple charts real quickly of Bitcoin here, but before we get to that, the charts, Danny, you you know you've been flagging just again as another pocket of risk right going all the way back to the start of 2021 here and now we have bitcoin that's down nearly 80 percent and i'm just curious what does it mean to you that this space for all intents and purposes we've seen fraud we've seen kind of just people getting past you know pfps these profile pictures of of bored apes and this and that like all the manias have seemed to busted DeFi seems to be a bust for now here, what does that mean to you as you broaden it out to the broader sort of kind of um, investor mindset? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, listen, for someone who never really bought into it, of course, I miss a huge potential to to the upside. To watch it unravel like this is unsettling. And and it, it's unsettling because I feel bad for a lot of the retail community that got hung up in this. I've talked about this over the last year that the bigger Wall Street corporations, the bigger banks and it was kind of their hands were forced in to say we're doing something in crypto over the last kind of four to six quarters, right? They said, oh, we're gonna we're gonna partner with this. Oh, we're exploring doing some application with crypto and this and that and the other. And you're right. I mean, I didn't read the article from Sorkin, but I'm sure they're like, oh, cute. Well, I know the regulators. The bigger that this thing got as an industry, the more nervous that they got. And I guess give them credit if you want. They didn't regulate it soon enough, and now there'll yeah. be nothing left to kind of regulate. But I think about this sector really in general as kind of the dot-com periphery, or at least some of it. You know, some of it's going to be here to stay, blockchain's here to stay, but we think about the pets.com in 2000 and 2001, those type names, those were those tokens that were out there. That's what that is. And that was just the gamification of the market, the ability to buy and sell these things as easily as you could gamble on sports, as easily as you could buy and sell stocks. I think the access became very easy in the same way E-Trade came in, you know, 1998, 99, 2000 and exploded higher. So I think we're seeing a, a loss of confidence I shouldn't say in the overall markets, but you're yeah. going to see loss of investors here. So. Yeah, well, you've definitely seen loss of investor assets, and a lot of them just been locked up and they've gone to poof. You have not been able to withdraw them. Carter, real quickly on the charts, I have a, a short-term one. I have uh, going back, you know, a year or so, and you see that twenty nine thirty thousand level is obviously epic technical resistance. And and listen, you could have a huge rally back to that, and it doesn't mean we're back. And then I have one going back to that two thousand and seventeen retail craze. What are the charts telling? you because you've been a seller of rallies um, for months and months here in this thing. I mean, I think the important thing to note is sort of where we are now, juxtaposed to where we've been. Now, more money has been lost in crypto than has ever been made because there was much more money involved at the top than there was on the way up. So just to put in perspective, the COVID low was at 4,000 and here we are at 20,000. Yeah. And just as there was meme stocks and then there was uh, Bitcoin and then there were SPACs and goes on and on, easy money policies post-COVID give you this kind of thing, just what Danny said. And uh, there's every potential for this to continue to deteriorate. 
All right, my man. Well, I appreciate it. Listen, I want to thank both of you guys. Um, Guy, um, we miss you. Um, I'm sure you're 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 watching and listening over there. Uh, you don't know, you're probably not, but I really appreciate your guys' insights here. And um, again, you know, there's a lot of things going on here, and I think it makes sense to kind of take your fundamental inputs, take your uh, technical inputs, think about your kind of risk tolerance here, because these are kind of some of the funkiest markets I think the three of us seen uh, have seen in a very long time. So thanks a lot. That's going to do it for market call. Thanks to Danny Moses of Moses Ventures. He is my co-host with Guy Adami on On The Tape Podcast. You can get more of his dulcet tones there. They drop every Friday. And of course, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. You know where you can find his stuff, worthcharting.com. And thanks again to our sponsor, CME Group, and of course, Open Exchange, who powers this video. If you are enjoying our show, be sure to like the video and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you guys. You guys have great commentary. So Carter and I will be back tomorrow. We will be joined with Liz Young from SoFi at 1 p.m. So we thank you very much for joining us today uh, and we'll check you guys tomorrow. Thanks a lot.